in here has kids that struggle with sharing? Anybody have a, a, a child that struggles sharing? Some of you, yeah, me, okay. Who, who, uh, what adult in here struggles with sharing? Anybody struggle with sharing? Okay, there you go. There's some, there's more honesty. Um, who in here, I, I like watching this, uh, who hates sharing your gum? Just own it. There you go. So I, I love, that's the, the closest thing that you see most Christian people uh, look like they're doing drug deals, right? Because, uh, <laughs> can I say that? Is that okay? You'll seriously, if you have a friend that you actually want to share with, you'll see them like, you'll hide it like this. You'll be pulling in like, take, take, all right, walk away, walk away. You know, that's how you share your gum so that not everybody else wants a piece, right? We, uh, do you, uh, do you control the size of a bite somebody gets if they want to try your food? Anybody control it? Anybody like, no, I, I, I will give you the bite. I'll pick that for you. You're not getting a big bite. You're getting a small bite. My, uh, my, my mother-in-law, um, she's, she's here right now. I love this. Uh, she used to, when she'd share a bite of her sandwich, <laughs> she'd hold her hands like this right on the edge to make sure you couldn't go too big on the, on the sandwich bite. <laughs> and I like that. I, I, I use that now. That's, uh, it's a good technique. Um, who in here, when you let somebody borrow one of your tools and they use it the wrong way, it makes you just cringe. They're, they're like using it the wrong way. They're doing the, the you know, not proper method. We struggle with sharing, don't we? You can see it in your kids. You see it in us as adults. We struggle with sharing. And today we're going to study about the struggle of sharing in the early church. We're going to see uh, some people doing this very, very well. And we're going to get to see some people that do not do this very well. So if you want, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up chapter 4 and going a little bit into chapter 5. I'm going to read that uh, first part for you right now. Starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one said that, uh, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the res- uh, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all there was not a needy person among them For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the apostle at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet. All right, we're going to walk through this just for a moment. So first of all, I want to read this again. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So those that believe, that's a, that's a very important thing here. We want to understand this. The, the word believe there is, uh, it's the, from the root word pistis in uh, Greek, and that's the word for faith. So this is, uh, we don't have a verb faith, but this is what that means. They faith in Jesus. It's a deep belief to have faith in Christ, to believe in him in a level that changes things for you. It's important to understand that faith in Christ is more than acknowledgement that he exists. Faith is more than just saying, yes, Jesus existed. He was a a real human. He existed and and was real because the Bible says that even demons believe in the existence of Jesus. We see this in James 2, 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here's the thing, these people that believe, these are people that had faith in Christ that changed them. 
It made them a new creation. And they weren't perfect. They still struggled. They still had things that they dealt with. They still struggled with their flesh, just like each of us do. But they were changed by Jesus. This is a faith that changed them. So the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. All right, I have a question. Do churches today struggle with unity? Some people laugh, some people cringed. Sadly, yes, right? Churches struggle with unity. Why do we struggle with unity? Because we're filled with a bunch of terrible people like me. We're filled with humans that struggle to act like Christ. Sadly, the most dividing issues in the church are typically the least important ones. Did you know that? The things that divide the most are typically things that matter the least. We care so little for the gospel and care so much about everything else. We will fight and be angry and mean and gossip and spew venom over silly things while ignoring the power of the gospel itself. In my experience, those who are the most, the most critical of my outward appearance care the least for my soul. Maybe that's been your experience. Where we so focused on the outside, the superficial, the silly things that don't matter. And we're so focused on those, so critical of those things. And we don't care for each other's souls. We don't care for each other's hearts. But the early church said there were one soul and one heart. How can such a huge, diverse, and different group of people be unified to the point of having the same heart and soul? Because their focus was on Jesus and not on other things. When my eyes are on Christ, my preferences become much smaller. When my eyes are on his grace in my life, I desire forgiveness for sin in your life, not condemnation for it. When my eyes are on Christ, his mission eclipses my mission. You see, we find unity when our eyes are on Jesus. Where we're going to find division is when my eyes are on me and on the things I don't like in you, right? It's where our perspective and our focus is. What brings unity to the church is our eyes being on Jesus, on his word, on his gospel, and not on ourselves. So this unity, though, it brought something there. It fleshed out in a very particular way here, which is incredible. It says they had everything in common. This church was so unified in Christ that they didn't see their possessions as their own. All of their stuff was just a potential blessing for somebody else. Can you imagine if we lived this way? What if we lived and said, all of my stuff isn't mine? It's not mine. It belongs to God. Everything that I have belongs to God. Now, is that a true statement? Of course it is. You've probably said that before at some point in your life. Yes, all, all things are God's. It's God's. Yeah, my stuff, God gave it to me. It's God's. But do you live that out? Because living it out looks like this. It means that thing that is, I'm a steward of at this point. It's in my house, but it doesn't belong to me. I'm a steward of it because God has given me everything that I have. It needs to be available for sharing at any moment because if somebody needs it and I have it, I should offer it. Who in here is struggling right now 
I am. Because what about the thing that you really like? What, what about your new pickleball paddle? Okay, maybe that's just me. Sorry, I got a little too specific there. I struggle, right? Because you might chip it on the ground. I'm going to get real mad. But God's called us to be a people who share as others have needs. To see everything we have as his. I'm not the owner of it. I'm the steward of it. And everything I have should be available to you as you have need. And this isn't just stuff. That includes our children. Did you know that? I don't own my kids. Now, God has given me stewardship of them for right now. And I'm to raise them into uh, to the discipline of the Lord. I'm supposed to disciple them, teach them who God is. But guess who they belong to more than they belong to me? God. And so if my children can be of service to you, guess what my goal, what my job is? Here you go. Anybody struggling still? I know it's so uncomfortable, sorry. God's called us to be a people so unified that we're willing to say anything I have, if you need it, is yours. Now, this is a hard way to live. Let's keep reading. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. I want us to focus on this for a second. So the church was so unified and so close. They're of one heart, one mind. They didn't see anything that they owned as their possessions. They saw themselves as stewards and they were sharing with everybody so that nobody was without. Everybody had their needs met because they were so, they were uh, sharing everything. And the apostles then were getting to speak the word. The apostles were able to focus on preaching the gospel of Christ because the church was meeting each other's needs. This is the picture of a biblical church. I want to read Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And he gave, this is Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see, the role of a pastor inside of the church, the role of elders is to teach the church, to equip the church to do ministry. That's what's happening in Acts right here. The apostles were getting to spend their time focusing on teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because the church was doing the work of the ministry. Do you know who in this room is called to ministry? All of you. If you are a born again follower of Jesus Christ, he has called you to ministry towards each other, to share, to give, to encourage, to love, to teach, to hold accountable and to serve. God has called his church to minister to each other. Are we living in that? It says there is not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed as any had need. Okay, this is a bold statement. There wasn't a needy person among them. This is not because all of them had plenty of money. It wasn't a church filled with the richest people. And it wasn't because one very wealthy person gave a ton of money. It was because everyone gave what they could. So there's a statistic that uh, has existed for a very long time in most churches that uh, 20% of the church attendance 
uh, typically supply 80 to 90% of the funds of the church, and 80% of the church gives little to nothing. My goal here is not to tell you what you should give. I, the, the, this is not to give a, a certain amount. But I, do, I know this, God has called everybody to be a part of being generous because it's his. So everybody gets to give something. And if you've never given, this is not a, shameful, uh, a shaming message. I don't want you to feel that way. A lot of people didn't grow up understanding how to give or don't know what the, that looks like. They, they don't understand this and that's okay. What God's called us to do is start somewhere. You know, what you could start with 1%. You could say, and I, I, I don't do it today, go and talk to your family, go and pray, go and see where the Holy Spirit leads you. But what if you come back next week and you say, I'm going to start giving 1% of what God's given me to give back to what his mission is at Clinging Ridge. That is generosity coming out in your life because that's more than you've ever given. If you're giving 10% and you say, I have met the law, I am tithing and doing what God's told me to do. That's not entirely true. Did you know that? We've talked about this before, but the Old Testament tithe was actually 23% of total income if you put all of them together. We're not under the Old Testament tithe though. But I want to say this, some people can be giving 10% and it's still not generous. Did you know that? It might be just obeying a law and you might still be able to give more. Some people can be giving 2% and living in absolute sacrificial generosity. So you need to decide what does it look like to be generous and sacrificial with my money as I'm giving towards God's mission at the church. These people were selling their houses and land to financially support others in their church. I want you to just think about that. You'd have people that said, oh, I, I have a house I don't need. I'm going to sell it and give every penny to the church because there's people who need money. When's the last time you heard of somebody doing that? If you wouldn't sacrifice to help someone in this room, what does that tell you about your priorities? Do you love your things that will not last more than the people Christ came to give eternal life to? Do you love people more or do you love stuff more? Now, if you're anything like me, as I was preparing and studying through this, I'm cringing a lot through this message because that's a struggle. That's a struggle, isn't it? Especially when you invest in something that means a lot to you. It's a struggle to not love things more than people. But God has called us to be a people that are starkly different from the world. Here's an example of somebody, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of, son of encouragement, a Levite, a native, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you've heard the name Barnas, Barnabas before probably, but mostly because you'll hear Paul and Barnabas. He went on Paul's first missionary journey. Barnabas was, a mission, uh, was on mission with Paul at the beginning. You see him do lots of things, but this is our first introduction to him. And this is where he sells a field that he owns so that he can give towards other people who needed it. He, he is truly living out his faith. Christ gave his life for us. We can follow his example of generosity by giving to his church. 
the people he came to save. Barnabas is given, has given to us as an example what, uh, what it means to live out faith in Christ. Sacrificial generosity is a mark of true faith in Jesus. Did you know that? Looking like Christ means you're living in sacrificial generosity with what he's given you. Now, that, that, I think that certainly includes money, but it also includes lots of other things, other things that we're also a little bit stingy with. Anybody stingy with your time? Oh, come on. You guys are struggling with the truth today. Um, I'm stingy with my time. It's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard to give up your time whenever you have only so much of it? Are you uh, stingy with your help when people need assistance? What about when someone's moving? Do you, do you suddenly have plans that you've forgotten about? We can struggle with selfishness and stinginess on a regular basis with all kinds of areas in our lives, can't we? But God has called us to follow the example of Christ being a sacrificial, generous giver. One of the things we have to do right now is pause after this positive example and say, where do I look? Where, what, how, do I, how do I look like the Bible here? Do I follow in the footsteps of Barnabas as being a sacrificial, generous giver? Am I willing to give up something I like to support the needs of somebody else? Or do I love my stuff more than I love people? Let's say, so Barnabas is our positive example, but we're going to also get to read about a negative example of somebody who didn't do this. So we're going to move to chapter five. I'm going to read verses one through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. We're going to pause there for a moment. So Ananias and Sapphira, they got to see what these other people are doing. So you have lots of people that are in this church that are selling things and giving to help the needs of others. I, I'm sure this was done for the glory of God, but I, I'm sure word got out that people were doing this. Obviously, that there was others that knew this. I mean, can you imagine being in need and finding out that somebody in, the, in our church sold land so that they could help support your need? help you pay bills because you got laid off work, whatever. Can you imagine the, the feeling of that kind of, of receiving that kind of generosity? Just knowing somebody cared that much that they would sacrifice themselves to help you. This is beautiful. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they were not one of the needy people, but they were one of the rich people. But, and they wanted others to look at them and think, man, they're cool. Man, they're givers. They, they loved the way that these people looked as they were giving. These people were moved by Jesus and seeing him work through each other. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be in on this, but for selfish reasons. They wanted people to praise their generosity, even though they were living in selfish and deceitful greed. While Barnabas is our example of living like Christ, Ananias and Sapphira are examples of living like the world. So Paul said, 
Ananias, why Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira are being led by Satan. But this brought me to a question. How do you lie to the Holy Spirit? I think ultimately you lie through denying his conviction that you need salvation. We see this in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. Now that last part, I think is awesome because we've gotten to read that, right? Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit and given the words to say even when they were brought before the authorities. This is beautiful. Jesus prepared them for that. But he says, anyone who blasphemes against, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is to deny what the Holy Spirit is saying, to say, you, you're telling me, Holy Spirit, you're convicting me and saying you are a sinner in need of salvation. You are lost. You are dead in your sins and you need Christ to make you alive. That's what the Holy Spirit is going around telling the world. He convicts the world concerning sin. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit to say, no, I'm good. Did you know that there's not a single good person in the world? Not one. Not a single one of us is good other than Christ in us. And the Holy Spirit tells us that. But the thing is, is that Christians can also attempt to restrict the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and live in lies instead. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, very short verse. Do not quench the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is a fire inside of us that lights the darkness and burns away all that doesn't belong there. But sometimes we pour water, pour the water of justification, denial, and even sheer rebellion on this flame, attempting to darken his light in our hearts. Has anybody ever done that? Anybody lived in justification of something that didn't belong in your life? Anybody live with sin for a long period of time saying, ah, it's not that bad, I'll deal with it later. What you're doing is pouring water on the Holy Spirit, trying to quench his flame, trying to ignore his voice. And it leads to our destruction because I've done this many, many times. I can tell you, it always, always leads to destruction. Peter tells them they didn't have to give anything. This was not a mandatory tax or a tithe like we find in the Old Covenant. This is a gift of generosity led by the Holy Spirit. So this passage makes it seem like the Holy Spirit was leading Ananias and Sapphira to give. That he was convicting them saying, hey, you've got more than you need. There's people here who aren't getting food to eat and you have a way to help pay for that. Why don't you share? It seems that the Holy Spirit was leading them to do that. But they didn't like where he was leading them at least not all of it. So they decided that they would be partially obedient. They're like, okay, sure. We'll sell something and we'll give something, but we're not giving all of it away because we want it. If you present yourself falsely as a Christian, you are lying to God. The Christian life is not for pretenders. Because faking it will only lead to disaster in your own life and in the lives of all the people that you influence. 
This is a place for people to be real, to really struggle, to really work at being more like Christ, to really hold each other accountable, to truly bear each other's burdens. This is not a place where we're supposed to show up and put our great mask on. Has anybody in here ever played the church game very well? I was great at it. Look the part. Show up and be smiles and happy and good. When in reality, my world was spinning out of control. Is that what Christ has called us to? No. He's called us to be a real people, truly living life together. But Ananias and Sapphira wanted to play the game. So why did Ananias die? Does anybody else in here struggle with this story? Anybody ever read this and struggle with it? I struggle with it. It's scary, isn't it? You see a, a man who is selfish and stingy and you think that's the extent of it and you're like, man, he died for that. Died right there. That's a difficult story to read. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. Why did he die? First of all, because all sin leads to death. James 1, 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I want us to understand this very clearly. Your sin, the sin you struggle with, the sin that you struggled with this morning, last night, last week, your sin, even though you think is harmless, is killing you. It will probably kill other things in your life first. It'll probably kill your character, your friendships, or your marriage, but it will lead to your destruction. The sin that you let live so comfortably in your own heart is destroying you, and God hates it. When you live more disgusted by sin in other people's lives than in your own, you are living in self-righteousness. There should be no sin that bothers you more than the sin inside of your own life. So all sin leads to death. But why did he die immediately when I haven't? Uh, who in here has ever been selfish or stingy? Anybody? A few of us. Good. Not alone. Did you die right then? If you're here, I'm, I'm supposing not. So why did Ananias die immediately? I think I have a few reasons. The first one is this. Because there's no greater threat to Christ's church than letting the enemy inside of it. Do you know why membership is important at a church? Because when you're a member of a church, what the church is saying is we agree that Jesus has changed you. You're a new creation in him. It's our church, so it'd be cleaner. It's putting a stamp saying, we see the evidence of Christ in this person's life. Do you know why church discipline or the removal of membership is important? Because if you can no longer see the evidence of Christ in somebody, you should not put the stamp saying, we think that they can represent Christ for us. It is dangerous for people who aren't saved by Jesus to be members of a church because that's letting wolves in. Can that person help being a wolf? Of course not, right? 
A lost person can't help but be a lost person. What we need to tell them is they need the gospel. But we must protect this. And it's so dangerous to let that happen. Second of all, there's no greater hindrance to the spread of the gospel than somebody pretending to be a Christian. Has anybody in here ever been hurt by a churchgoer? You guys are not good at this. This is how you raise a hand. You can do left hand if you want to. It's fine. Who in here has been hurt by a church person? Anybody? Me too. Who in here has ever met, you don't have to raise your hand to this one, met a church person who you don't see change the, the change of Jesus in? There's no greater threat to the spread of the gospel than somebody who's pretending to be a Christian. You want to know why? Because they can't look like Christ. So the world will watch them be mean and gossip and angry and uh, vindictive and, and withhold forgiveness. And they'll see all the attributes of the world at this, in this Christian. And they'll say, why would I want to be like you when you're worse than me? There's no greater harm to the spread of the gospel than people pretending to be Christians that haven't been changed by Christ. The last thing I, I see, and I think this is the most important thing of why Ananias died immediately. We needed an example of how serious God is about fake faith in the church. God hates sin. He hates it. And especially when sin is blatant in front of the church, he hates it so much. God doesn't just hate my sin. He hates your sin. He hates it. In the same way that a parent whose child is struggling with addiction to drugs, guess what that parent hates? Drugs. They hate drugs. Why? Because they're killing their child. God hates sin because it's killing you. He hates your sin because it's destroying you. And we need this example to see God doesn't want us to fake it, to pretend or to act like something else. He doesn't want us to try to get glory from others by looking like we're the part. He wants us to be who he's called us to be. I'm gonna read the rest of this. After an interval of about, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But see, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I would say so. Ananias and Sapphira agreed to lie to the church and to God about their giving. Giving is an act of worship. Giving money, giving of your stuff towards the church is an act of worship to God. You're supposed to be pointing to him. Jesus said, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. We're not supposed to be giving to get honor or glory for ourselves. But that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They were giving to receive praise. God will not share his glory. 
because we're not worth it. I'm not worth it. Do you know that? Nobody in this room is worth our worship. Only God is. So when we give, it is supposed to be just an act of worship to him saying, God, you are more important than my stuff. Your mission is more important than my mission to accumulate things. And I want to be a part of it. So after this, after they both die, great fear comes upon the whole church and all who heard these things. That word fear is phobos. So a lot of times you'll hear people say this. You'll, you'll see throughout the Bible that uh, we're to have a fear of God. And you'll, I don't know if you were explained it this way. When I was younger, everybody would tell me, oh, that's just respecting him very well. And I don't disagree that we need to respect God, but we should fear God. Not as somebody who is dangerous to us as an uh, abusive parent. Not fearing him as somebody who is mean or waiting to mess up or, or uh, uh, angry with us uh, for no reason. We fear God because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. I think we're wrong to have lost our fear of God. He's our salvation, but he's also our judge. He is love, but he is also justice. I love God and I fear God because all things belong to him, including me. You want to know why I think we can have a fear of God? Because everything that we're a part of belongs to him. And when we choose to rebel against him, we're rebelling against the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe. Who in here feared your parents when you were younger? Who in here fears your parents today? Love you, mom. That fear is a good thing. Now, I don't want my kids to fear me in a way that's because I'm abusive or uh, mean or, or acting terribly towards them. But they do fear disappointing me or, uh, or, or doing wrong things because I am called to be the one that disciplines them and corrects them when they do wrong. God is the ultimate father and we're called to live in love and fear of him because his way is what we have to live in. God has called his church to be holy and he will guide her into holiness. Sometimes that will be through, uh, through seeing his discipline in others. Sometimes it will be in discipline of ourselves. Who in here had to learn the hard way for a lot of things in your life? Who in here has lots of scars because of those very hard lessons? I, can't, I, I, I think I had seven sets of stitches by the time I was my eight-year-old son's age um, because I did not learn lessons very quickly. I, I had to try things and do things. And I, was, uh, I, I just did a lot. I'm the one that a lot of times God was like, uh, you're the example. <laughs> but he also gives us chances to learn when we see others because he is calling us to holiness. So even when we see the example of somebody else being disciplined by God, that's not for us to look down in self-righteousness and be like, what terrible person, I'm better than them. It's for us to look and say, it would be so easy to fall in the same trap. So God, in your grace, help me walk away from that. God has called us to be a light in a dark world. And we can only be this if we look different than the world in our character our priorities, and our choices. So the question is, do you? Do you look different than the world? Do you look more like Barnabas 
or like Ananias. If you guys would close your eyes and bow your heads with me. I'd like to wrap up with this this way. First question is this. Are you living in unity with everyone at Klingon Ridge? Are your, and the only way we can do this, the only way you can answer yes to that is to answer yes to this question. Are your eyes set on Christ? Or is your focus on lesser things? Because the only way we can have unity of one heart and one soul in this church is if all of our eyes are on Jesus and not on all the other little silly things. My second question is this, do you love people more than things? It's easy to try to answer that yes. Of course I love people more than I love my stuff, of course. But does your giving reflect that? Does your generosity reflect that you love people more than you love things? Or does your bank account make it appear that you love stuff more than any person? Will you ask God to show you how you can live in sacrificial generosity following the example of Jesus? God, I pray that you call us today to be a people that are called out to live differently. Lord, this early church, it's remarkable. They lived in perfect unity and this unity and love was so great that they didn't even see their stuff as their own, but it's just a method to bless others. God, help us to be that kind of a people. A people that would share anything that we need to. A people who would sacrifice excess to help meet needs of others. God, there's we have to look like you in generosity. And Lord, I, I, I want to ask forgiveness for where I've not been generous. I want to ask forgiveness for where each of us have dealt with selfishness and stinginess. Where we've loved things more than we've loved you or the people you came to save. And God, in doing that, we look just like the world. Help us not to follow the example of Ananias and Sapphira finding ways to give a little and keep as much as we can to, to, to worship stuff. But let us live in worship of you to be generous and to give, to share. That as the world sees us living in a way that doesn't make sense to them, they could look and see you. Help us to be a generous people. In your name I pray, amen. Please stand and respond however God leads you.